Jesus is the turn the other cheek guy. Trump is the I want to punch him in the face guy. And these evangelicals choose the I want to punch him in the face uh, savior. So it is a deeply disturbing idea that Donald Trump said to them, I will save Christianity for you. But Christianity doesn't need saving. Christianity exists to save the world. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Welcome, everyone, to The Head and the Heart. This is Perry Rogers. And this is Ed Borgato. Remember that our show is available on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. Hey, Perry. How are you doing? Hi, Ed. Uh, I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm in a very good mood. Yeah. <laughs> I share that. I share that. That's for sure. Um, I'm excited so for today's discussion with Doug he, Padgett. Uh, he's a, he's kind of a big deal. He, he reached out to me, um, I don't know, let's say six, seven months ago. And uh, asked if I would help him with some messaging for his organization. And I, I didn't know really who he was. I called a pastor friend of mine, and they said, no, no, he's a big deal in the Christian church. Uh, I said, really? And uh, they said, yeah. And um, I just have gotten to know, know Doug over the last six, seven months, and I really like him. I think he is out there living what he believes. Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. He, we've gone over this past year – where I think there's been a collision between religion and politics that has puzzled a lot of people trying to understand where people of faith are coming from, uh, from a political perspective. And um, it it makes me want to ask you a question because you and I have talked about this and and I wanted you to sort of refresh this, this talk we've had before where you draw a distinction between faith and religion which I think is, is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, a person's faith is their relationship with God directly. And religion is man's attempt to create a structure for people and their relationship with God. And so for me, as a result, I am not, um, I'm not quick to trust a religion. Uh, I am quick to trust and rely on my faith. My faith is, you know, I'm a Christian. Uh, my faith is based on the Bible, but I'm I'm wary of religion because I think generally it's been used historically to control other people. And my understanding of faith is that God's greatest gift to us was free will. So I become very wary of religion because I think it actually interferes with the very gift that God gave us. Yeah. That, that rings true to me. Um, it's a, it's so much, it's easier for politicians to use, you know, um, to make people afraid when their religion or their, their, their institution of faith feels like it's under attack, something they belong to, but it's much more difficult to, really attack someone's faith, like the, the innate quality they have, the thing that they believe, you know, you can't make someone not believe what they believe, uh, you know, if they hold it very dear to their heart. Um, 
but of course you can say things about their religion or the organization or the church they belong to, which they naturally be very defensive about and want to want to protect. Do you bring your faith into the voting booth with you? Well, um, in how you decide. Yeah. So uh, I do, but let me explain that, um, that, uh, I, I don't bring my faith into the voting booth, um, in a way where I want someone to share uh, my faith. I um, bring my faith into the voting booth in a way that I want um, political leaders to share the values of celebrating God's creation and um, working to assist um, all of God's creation. So I'm interested in uh, what I believe Jesus calls us to do, which is to love one another the way God loves us. And so um, I do bring it into the booth as to, well, which of these candidates is going to be the most inclusive, is going to be the most interested in helping those who need a hand. Um, And I don't bring it in, uh, which is, oh, Jenny or Johnny, they have the same title that I have uh, of a Christian or, you know, that they wear it as uh, team colors or something like that. I'm not interested in that at all. So if somebody were Jewish or they were Muslim uh, or they were Buddhist uh, or they were atheist um, and they supported deeply held convictions of um, helping other people and um, lending a hand and how we can live in community that is what I would be interested in. Okay. Well, let's have Doug join us. He's on the front lines of this collision between politics and religion. Okay. So let's get it, let's get into it. So uh, let me introduce uh, our guest today. Our guest is Doug Padgett. Uh, he is a progressive evangelical pastor and author associated with the Emerging Church Movement. Padgett is the founding pastor of Solomon's Porch in South Minneapolis and the executive director of Vote Common Good. During weekly gatherings of Solomon's Porch, instead of giving traditional sermons, Padgett facilitates dialogical talks, encouraging questions and participation from the congregation, and is a good friend. So, Doug, welcome to the show. Well, I will tell you, Perry and Ed, I've been thinking about this all day, so I'm really glad to be here. Welcome. So, Doug, if if you don't mind, because uh, Ed and I have just had a discussion about faith and how it it's worked into our uh, politics. Start at the beginning, if you don't mind. What attracted you to the Christian faith to begin with? Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm 54 years old, and, and I grew up in a family that didn't have any religion at all in our family system. In fact, I didn't know anything about religion. I uh, I probably know knew less about Christianity than people would know about any religion they could name. I didn't know Christmas and Easter were religious holidays or that they were connected to each other when I was 16 years old. I just really a fully non-religious family and background. And I didn't even know, or we didn't even act as if we were missing something. So it wasn't like my family said, Hey, we're not going to church on Sunday. Um, There was just no, no framework for it at all. Um, and that actually turned out to be a really beneficial thing to me because when, when I was um, first introduced to the notions of Christianity as a 16-year-old, I, I didn't have all the baggage that so many people have of it being the family history or of it being uh, a childhood 
um, uh, text or a childhood uh, narrative that I had to overcome. Uh, so it's really benefited me to be able to approach it with sort of a late adolescent, early adulthood mentality. And I, I got into Christianity's um, core message really early when I first learned of it, which is which I thought was about human flourishing and this idea that Jesus was this this master teacher calling people to live in a everlasting way of God in the world and to join a path that would lead to life for everyone. Um, it was only later, you know, when I went to seminary and started hanging around certain other kinds of evangelical Christians that people started to suggest that this was some kind of a, uh, an exclusivist uh, religion or that um, some of us were inside of something and others were on the outside. Um, it, it, it seemed to me that this teaching of Jesus was that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear that which was coming alive in the world, you know? Um, so I, I immediately found this like struggle with my own spirituality, what I felt was happening in me and the kind of full life that I felt in my early Christian days with the religion that was wrapped around that story. And that's a struggle that, you know, I've uh, found myself in now for the last, you know, whatever it's been 35 39 years um, is trying to separate out that personal experience of alivened spirituality from the, the engagement of the, the, the Christian religion that's wrapped, that's wrapped around it. And I'm fully in, like, as you mentioned, I'm a pastor, you know, I, I run an organization that tries to advocate for more inclusive engagement of, of spirituality in the world, especially among Christians. So, I mean, I'm really deeply embedded in the religious tradition as much now as I am the uh, just the faith itself. When you came across kind of that first conflict between feeling like your interest in your faith was how inclusive it was and how encouraging it was for others. And then you saw another group say, well, no, this is really an exclusive group. How did you overcome that tension? And does that tension still exist? And um, how do you handle that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the paths that I, chose to engage in to try to overcome that was to become a spokesperson for that Christian spirituality, right? So ultimately went to seminary and became a pastor and tried to be a public theologian and have, have tried to be one of the voices to speak up. I, I so deeply believe in inclusion and in dialogue that I never wanted to tell someone else to be quiet. So I didn't want to tell the exclusivists that they should turn down. I thought we should tell the rest of us to turn it up. Uh, and turn up the volume. So I've tried to, so, so the way I tried to rectify it was to recognize that nobody owns the Christian message or the Christian story. It certainly doesn't belong to the exclusivists. So I might as well get out there and act like I have as much right to speak into it and to advocate for it and to say, this is what it means. And this is what it's about. So that's ultimate. And it also fits my personality. And I sort of have a, a personal temperament that fits well with that kind of idea. So I tried to get out and to create and to make communities of faith, to make organizations, to try to create public theology and wanted to, to be louder both and, and turn up the volume, both in volume of decibels, like more people saying more things um, as well as saying those things louder and in, in more places. Like, I don't know why we turn over a street corner preaching only to the, uh, you know, to the exclusivist. Uh, other people that are out there yelling that God hates you. Like, why isn't somebody you know, on every proverbial street corner reminding us that we're, we all have something to contribute. We're all included and uh, we're all part of this, this life together. When Perry and I have these conversations offline, he has often drawn this distinction between his faith 
and religion. Mm. And I was wondering if you connect with that at all and um, how you would speak to that. Yeah, I, I do. And, and I think it's actually an okay thing. I think it's part of being a mature person, right? To recognize that our own individual experiences are really different from the collective experience, uh, right? Like, I, like as an analogy, I think about marriage. Like, um, I'm not sure about the, the institution of marriage in our world, but boy, my marriage is really important to me and I'm going to do everything I can to stay in it and to, to make it thrive. And, uh, but that I recognize that that's different from sort of, you know, anybody who's in their industry, I think, feels this kind of tension between what they're doing and what the overall industry is up to and about. And so I think that's part of the maturity that we have to, to struggle with as, as people. And, and so we have to do that in our religion, right? And we, um, the best thing we can do, I think, is to create the kind of reality we want in the world and not only to complain when others haven't created the spaces that fit us as well as, as we might want them to. So that's why I went out and started a church and tried to you know, advocate inside of some new religious movements of Christianity. And because I, I thought, well, if I don't like the way someone else is doing it or the religion that I've been handed, um, it's my responsibility to create something and leave it for the generations that are going to follow. Uh, so they can, you know, I guess, argue with the version that I tried to put together too. And, and talk about that. What are, what are the things that for you, you wanted to put together and why'd you want to put them together? Well, I think that, you know, in the, in the most broad sense, the term politic means how people choose to organize their lives and live together in the world. Right? I think that's the most generous, broadest form of politic. And so I've always wanted to have a political avenue to my spirituality. I think there's a responsibility that we all have to one another on this planet. And, and some of us may, you know, s- scope that responsibility in a smaller structure and some might have it be more, more wide ranging, but we're all responsible to and for one another. So I wanted to do that not only in electoral politics, which is the areas I'm spending most of my life working in now, trying to get religious people to stop Donald Trump's re-election, um, but also uh, trying to create uh, other kinds of uh, structures and communities. And, and I think that means housing. I think that means economics. I think that means uh, our, our civic infrastructures and churches. So I've tried to work in, in a lot of those spaces. So like I owned a business that, that, that did housing and, and really thought it was important to create places where uh, uh, people who couldn't afford normally or their life background would cause them to not be able to rent from someone. So I owned, you know, a, a rental Prop, uh, property rental business, which for some people thought it was like, oh, that's supplemental in, you know, like uh, if you're in, you know, kind of church work, they think that's just supplemental income. And like, no, it's like, it's all a part of trying to create a reality in the world that I want uh, to be more, more reflective of what I think that the story of humanity can be. So I've just, I, I think that all the pieces count. And, and theologically, I refer to all that as, as a theology of holism, meaning that everything is included, a holistic view of life. And so to have a holistic view, it seems that you don't get to leave anyone or any area of life out. And I recognize that that's the primary distinction that tends to happen between my kind of spirituality that I see in Jesus and religion, that religion tends to want to care for some pieces of society or some pieces of civic life. You mentioned civic life and politics um, in the context of faith. And the thing that sort of inspired this conversation to want to bring us together was this article in the New York Times this summer by Elizabeth Diaz that um, talks about the really well-known speech that Donald Trump gave in January of 2016 at a church in Iowa, where he famously said, 
I could go out on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any votes. And what's forgotten and what this article she wrote uh, really walks through very well is what else was said that day. And um, in that speech, he, he went on to say that Christianity is under tremendous siege and that um, the Christians, while Christians make up most of this country, they, they don't exert as, as the power that they should. And that if I'm elected, you're going to have power. Um, you're not going to need anybody else. You're not, right. you know, they're not going to mock people like us. And I'm, I'm going to be there for you. And of course, I think with like a lot of people feel is this, this contradiction between that evangelical cohort and a person like Donald Trump, at least his personal, his, his, his public persona. So how do you, you know, respond to that and think about that story yeah. and, and, and that support that he garnered? You know, is it consistent with something I'm not saying or is it as inconsistent as it seems? Well, I, I'm very familiar with that speech that he gave. Uh, I've watched it and uh, uh, read read it and know it quite well. And I take Donald Trump quite seriously that he was striking a bargain with those evangelical cr- Christians. And he was saying to them, um, I will do your bidding. You want power? I will give it to you. Um, so th- I guess the way I take it is this has been one of the struggles that I've had with the evangelical tradition that has um, cared for me in my religious life, especially when I was a teenager. And that is um, that the very gospel that Jesus calls us to is one where you give up power on behalf of and for the benefit of others, right? The very teaching of Jesus that you see in, uh, articulated in the book of Philippians is Jesus, while being in the very form of God doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And uh, so, so here's this notion, right, that what one is to do is to live their life on behalf of the common good or on behalf of the of of others. To uh, One gives their life for another in benefit for all of humanity, what I would call the benefit and blessing of the world. That's the Jesus teaching. Then there's this other version of evangelical Christianity, which is this should all be about you and you getting some kind of benefit from this. And there's a lot of people who've organized their Christian spirituality around a benefit exchange system with the ultimate end of the benefit being, if you're the right kind of Christian, you get eternal life, right? If you do it right here, then you get the big payoff, which is, you know, life everlasting, which is the furthest thing from Jesus's teaching, right? Jesus is one who says, I give up my life on behalf of others, right? So, so this, this bargain, this truly a devil's bargain that Donald Trump articulated, you know, in, in uh, Iowa to those Christians at, at, that, at that Christian college, it's the oldest bargain that's been being made. I mean, you, you go to the Gospels and you have Jesus in the desert being tempted. The reason that narrative is in there is because that's the very temptation, right? Give, uh, you know, bow to me and I'll give you the whole world in this, you know, in the temptation narrative. And you're supposed to read that as a cautionary tale, right? You're supposed to read that as don't take that deal. And here these evangelicals see Donald Trump come in and they think, oh, the whole world for my soul, that's a deal that I'll take. But look, if this was the first time that some of us had to call out to our fellow uh, uh, people of faith and say, I think you've made a bargain with the devil here and you need to step away from it. If this was the first time, that, that would be something. But this is a habit with these evangelicals and the evangelicals that are part of the tradition that I come from. So the amount of work that we have to do to provide an alternative to that view, it is just seemingly ongoing. And the reason we formed the organization 
that I'm running now called Vote Common Good uh, is specifically to respond to that deal that Donald Trump made to those those Christians on that day, um, because we know that far too many not only did they want to take that deal, they have been waiting decades for someone to come along to make that offer to them. Uh, they have felt shorted by all the kind of uh, Republican soft wink and a nudge that they were hearing from Republican candidates. And they really wanted someone who would be their fighter. They wanted someone to fight for them. I, you know, Je- uh, Pastor Jeffries from Dallas says that all the time. He says, I don't want a lover. I want a fighter. Like we want someone who's going to fight on our behalf and fight for us. And, you know, this is utter nonsense in the Christian tradition. Like you don't, You know, uh, Jesus is the turn the other cheek guy. Trump is the I want to punch him in the face guy. And these evangelicals choose the I want to punch him in the face uh, uh, savior. So it is a deeply disturbing idea that Donald Trump said to them, I will save you. I will save Christianity for you. Um, But Christianity doesn't need saving. Christianity exists to save the world, in other words, to, to make the world, to save the world from itself, from its own self-destruction, its own self-mutilation. Uh, uh, so, so it is about as far from the very teachings as you could get. Um, and uh, it doesn't surprise me that people have taken the deal that's offered by a charlatan like Donald Trump. And that's why the ancient scriptures, whether it's the Jewish scriptures of what we call the Old Testament or, you know, uh, or Jesus's admonition or what you see later in the writings of the New Testament, that you um, you really need to be um, uh, mature enough to not take a deal like that, because it's one that will lead you exactly where it has led them, which is now down a path where they feel they have no no argument to be made based on character. I mean, can, can you imagine these same evangelical Christians now having to say, we don't think character counts. We don't think the way you live your life matters. We think it's only what you do and not what you say that, that matters. Like since, since when has that ever served humanity well or been the Christian call? Yeah, so sorry for the mini sermon there, but I've no, thought a lot about this. And, yeah. It's actually exactly what we want to talk about. I mean, so they've painted themselves into a corner. I mean, they, they, they don't have the standing. And so there's a healing that has to take place there for the Christian community. How do they come back into the conversation about character in a credible way? But there's also a healing that has to exist between um, what progressives and Democrats uh, are talking about and how they embrace people of faith because they've done a terrible job of embracing people of faith. Uh, uh, and they've done a great job of being condescending to people of faith. You know, uh, I've got a, a really good pastor friend and, um, uh, you know, I'm a person of faith and I, my politics, I, I pray, um, reflects that, which is, uh, I'm about inclusion. So I don't understand someone not being, I don't understand someone of faith not being progressive because we should all want to include God's creation. But I respect that that's just my opinion. And I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and he said, you're not hearing me. I can't support a political party that doesn't want to acknowledge my existence. And so that's the other part of the healing that has to exist. How do we have these conversations? Because you're in – I mean, the Vote Common Good has a bus. You go across the country. You're in Pennsylvania now. You were in D.C. yesterday. How do we start to have these conversations where we can heal this issue and not have these conversations where it becomes so inflamed so quick. I mean, you're talking about, don't talk about two things, religion or politics. And we're talking about both here, (laughs) putting them together. So how do we do that uh, in a way where we're not coming across as judging and where we're, where we can hear the other. 
Well, I think it starts with um, truth telling and and hearing hearing what uh, one another hears as truth, right? So, so there are a lot of Christians uh, in the United States who believe that Democrats want religion to stop existing in the United States. Um, now, I'm someone who finds myself sort of on both sides of that. There's days where as a religious professional, I wonder if the country wouldn't do better without the structures of religion. Um, but that's because I want that to be for human flourishing, right? I think may, maybe our religious systems have gotten in the way of of what, what the religion wants to hold to. But there's people who think that what they mean is, Democrats, is we don't want you uh, as religious people to be around. We don't really care what you think. I mean, the one thing Donald Trump has taught me is that voters don't need you to be like them, to vote for you. In other words, Donald Trump is nothing like these evangelicals, but like all voters, religious people do want you to like them and they want you to uh, believe that, you know, you matter in the world. And the number of candidates, we, we do training of, of democratic candidates on how to connect with uh people of faith to ask them for, for their vote. Um, and the number of candidates who don't talk about anything to do with religion or faith, almost as a point of pride when they're campaigning is amazing. Can, can I tell you one story about that? A person yeah, that we met in, in uh, I'll just say Wisconsin to save her because uh, I didn't ask her permission to s- share this, but she's somebody who's currently um, uh, in the state assembly and she's running for Congress. Um, she was running for Congress in this last election. And at one of our events, we'd run these events that we uh, entitle Faith, Hope and Love for a Change on Election Day. And it was trying to get Democrats elected across the board and, and to stop the reelection of Donald Trump by moving to religious, moving religious voters votes. So she's at our event and, you know, stumping and said, um, it is kind of fun for me to be here because uh, normally when I do my introduction at my political events, I don't tell people this part of it, that growing up, my mom was a pastor. And so I grew up in a, in a pastor's house and I immediately thought, why don't you tell people that your mom was a pastor? Right. right. A little while later in her conversation, she said, you know, when I go door to door here in this, in this town, I knock on doors and people ask oh, open and I say, you know, I'm a Democrat and I'd like your vote. And they say, well, I'm a Christian. So I vote for Republicans. And she said, I don't understand why people think that. And, and I put those two pieces together in a way that I don't think she had, which was, well, when you won't even tell people your biography, like I can't imagine if you grew up with a mom that was a farmer or a mom that was in the military that you wouldn't say, Hey, I grew up as an army kid, or I grew up on a farm. Like what? What is it that keeps Democrats from telling just the basic truth about what's going on? This is what I mean by truth telling, that we have to say that we we know you feel excluded by Democrats. Can we talk about why that is and actually talk about it and own it? Or can Democrats talk about their own faith? Time and time again, we hear candidates say, yeah, I don't, I don't know why I don't share that. And we're not asking them to make up a faith. And look, at Vote Common Good, we're not asking for people to vote for religious candidates. Being a religious person doesn't make you a good candidate or a good politician. Like We want Christian people to use their Christianity to drive their vote, not to drive the politician right that, that that's not how that's not how your faith is meant to serve the common good by only electing people that are like you not at all the way, the way that it should happen but why the democratic party has this hostility to religion um and to religious voters um without without just recognizing and, and naming out the parts where it's a problem and look i get it and we should start naming it now i will say this is a particular problem in the white church because black churches 
They talk about democratic politics quite often. Very often, black candidates who are running for office will talk about their own faith, and black voters will be very comfortable talking about their faith. But white leaders, white voters, white um, uh, uh, pastors, we get nervous about it in a different way. So in a lot of ways, we have to recognize that this is a racial problem, that we allow religion to serve some communities differently than it does others. And that's something we have to come to grips with uh, in this in this country. One thing I thought was really interesting from the article was that I think that there's a misunderstanding that these evangelical voters think that Donald Trump was one of them, is one of them. And he, there was an interesting quote um, and I forget the gentleman's name, but he said, uh, I know that he's not a man of integrity. You know, I know he's not a Christian. He doesn't have these values, but it doesn't matter. Um, uh, I, I, you know, he's, he specifically said, you know, but at least he doesn't attack us yes. and he's fighting for us. And so it makes me think, you know, is even going into the realm of religion the right way to persuade anyone in an argument relating to politics? Because you know, everyone is their own custodian of their life's journey and what it means to them to be a Catholic or a Christian or a Jew or what, what have you. And so forgive me because I'm trying to gather my thoughts here because I might be, you know, in the deep end of the pool in terms of this subject matter. But, you know, who is it to say to anyone else, I guess, you know, you're not really following Christian tenets if you're supportive of this, well, well, maybe from their point of view, the way they view Christian tenants, they are. No, for sure. And I think that's a really sensitive, um, important uh, thing to note. I think it, it's a sensitivity that's, that's meaningful. And look, um, the Christian religion doesn't give you enough structure to know who to vote for in American politics, right? It's, it's, you, you have to do your own work, right? You have to take your teachings. You have to take your understanding. You know, Perry and I obviously have taken our Christian teachings and we've ended up on an inclusive path. Other people have ended up on a exclusive path. Some have ended up on a don't be involved in politics at all path. So mm-hmm. it's, it's more of a starter kit for your polit- for your political view than just a one-to-one. You don't just get to read a Bible passage and then take it to take it to your vote. And that's part of maturity as a as a as a person, as a human being. Um, You know, one of our messages we do at Vote Common Good, and we think it's helpful. And it's what I want to encourage others to do as well. We don't say to these voters who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 as religious voters, we don't say to them, hey, listen to us and we will tell you how to vote. We say to them, listen to yourself four years ago. Listen to yourself a week ago. Listen to yourself on Sunday. Like, don't you don't have to listen to me. Go back and read, you know, what what you wrote in an email back when Barack Obama was president or when Bill Clinton was president. Like, we're asking you to live up to the words that you put in your own kids' mouths. Like, we're not we're not trying to put words in your mouths or teachings in your head. There's a sense in which we're really saying, why did you make this swap for this guy? And look, I understand why they did. I watched Donald Trump. I stood in a room with him at the Value Voter Summit in Washington, D.C., where he stood and looked at a bunch of people in that room, faith voters. And this is the real extreme side of the religious right. So Ralph Reed and that crowd, you know, that their their thing and um, and, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Dobson and that that whole crowd of of right-wing religious leaders and donald trump stood on the stage and said they meaning democrats they hate you 
and they hate me and together we're going to win. It's a version of my enemy's enemy is my friend. Donald Trump is saying we hate the same people and the same people hate both of us. So that connects us together. Yeah. That's an old formula. Yeah. And that's, so, so that's what he's doing. Right. And so what you say to these people is, why are you organizing your life around people you hate and that you're afraid of like that, that actually isn't how you live. And, and this is the hardest thing because when you talk to these religious folks about the other things they do in their life, very often they work hard to engage with the impacts of poverty. They'll, they'll work really hard to, to deliver food into the United States and other parts of the world. They're the first people to show up when there's a natural disaster. Yeah. They're people who really care about deep. And then they get into this political world and all of this goes away. And I'm telling you, these same people become so angry and so mean. And I've had them scream at me for the last year that we've been traveling the country, you know, doing uh-huh. our faithful beloved. I, it is, um, it is amazing. And they'll often scream about abortion, like literally screaming about it. And, um, and abortion is very often a stand in for I'm moral and you're immoral. So they don't really all work on issues of abortion. You know, I ask them all the time, like, do you spend your, do you spend any time? Do you spend any money working in crisis pregnancy centers? Have you adopted children? I mean, I, I do those things. Have you, have you been engaged in any way? They don't. The one response they have to abortion is I don't vote for Democrats. <laughs> so it shows you that it's a category of morality. It's not a personal cause that they're engaged in, even though they, they speak about it that way. So what you're really dealing with here is identity. And Ed, I think your conversation about trying to tell other people what should form their identity, it's not helpful. Um, but pointing out, and this is just true in any kind of spiritual uh, work you do with uh, with other human beings, right, is uh, telling people how they should be tends not to work very well, right? But inviting people into another way of being, uh, that's the option. Uh, our, our work is deeply influenced by behavioral change experts, and behavioral change experts uh, say that there's three sets of conditions that have to be in place uh, for someone to make a change. And this this could be you know a religious change, or eating habits, or learning a new language, or wearing a mask, and you know washing your hands. And that is that people need to take in new information. They need to learn something they didn't know before. Obviously, you have to do that. Democrats are pretty good at that. But then there also has to be an invitation that's given to go with that information. In other words, someone says, join me. And then there needs to be a community of participation that you could enter into to follow that invitation and put that information into action. So Weight Watchers groups are a great illustration of this or an AA uh, group or a, a language club or a cycling team or something like this or a running group, right? They're... Um, or religion, right? This is why people have churches and synagogues and mosques and and groups of participation because you, you have to have a group you can join. And there's this thing in, in our politics that we tend to act as if someone hasn't thought the way we think long enough to join our group, then they're not welcome. Now, look, I, I know how unwelcoming religion can be. I mean, I have felt the, the pain of it. I, I can also assure you that politics is a very unwelcoming community as well. Uh, boy, if you try to tell someone I voted for George Bush twice, you may never be fully welcomed into a community, right? There's no penance you could pay for, you know, a vote in 2000 and 2004. 
um, and that level of mistake, let alone someone who voted for Donald Trump in 2016. You know, how do you how do you ever repent enough from that kind of group? So part of our political civic life is we have to create communities of participation that that have a have an easier entrance and are more are more um, accommodating to people who want to make a change and to say to people, hey, we know you're new to all this. We know you're nervous being here. We'd love to welcome you in. Yeah, we have to show people the very grace that we want others to show us. Yeah. And it's, that's the problem, I mean, right? It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a struggle for us. Grace is um, such a, a hard uh, attribute or character trait for us to find when we become convinced that our way of living is right and someone else's way of living is wrong. Absolutely. And, and look, and the, the, the alternative or the opposite of grace is shame, right? Um, how could you, how dare you, what kind of person now people listening to this might, if you just start thinking about how you think about Trump voters, it's like that, right? Especially religious Trump voters. I mean, I promise you, I think there's this tendency to want to be like, what, how could you like what kind of person? OK, all, all of that. I know it's part of the the shock that we all have about really how could these people do this? Um, but we have to find other um, other ways to narrate that story. Um, you know, I, in the Christian tradition, you have this great line that Jesus says when he's being executed, you know, or what my friend likes to remind me is closer to a lynching. Right. Where a political system of law and order publicly executed a person of of ethnic difference so that they could maintain order right so a lynching is a good illustration of it and in the midst of that jesus teaching is father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing now now this is not jesus being flippant about like forgiveness or you know don't worry about people doing wrong he's he's saying there's a deeper understanding for a person to have about another person behavior and action, which is that they are also lost and trapped in this behavior and they don't know another way out. So I have a friend who does a lot of work in prison with men who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. And if you know much about this, you can imagine that, you know, these are people that are dry drunk in, in prison, right? They often can't access the, the, the drug of their choice, um, but their patterns don't change. And um, what Tom has taught me about this is um, that you first have to look at someone dealing with an addiction and recognize that their addiction is, in their mind, their best option, not their worst. If you look at it and say, why do you keep doing a bad thing to yourself? You have so many better options. You don't understand the, the, the addict's experience. That what an addict is saying is, no, the drug or the alcohol, that's my best option right now. There's, all the other options are worse for me than that one. That's their lived experience. That's been very helpful for me to recognize that most all of us, whatever we do, we do because we think this is our best next behavior. So you think, what is it that makes someone have this on their list of options as their next best behavior, right? Um, Now, I don't have to understand it or get it, but if I can begin with the empathic engagement that they think this is a good, right thing, and I don't understand why they think this is a good, right thing, then I can start to move a little bit toward them to start to walk with them toward recognizing that maybe they have options that are better for them and better for others than the ones that they're currently taking. 
Um, but boy, this, I mean, this is really hard work, right? Who, who has time when you've got an election breathing down your neck, you know, and, and the, and the consequences are so high. And this is why we have to work on these issues for the every day in the four years between presidential elections and two years between, uh, other, because our, our, our politics actually matter because they, they put into place the, the bad theology of our religion. They, they codify it into, into law. And we, we need to start seeing bad theology as a public health crisis because it is and so we should we, we should approach it in a way that says what do we have to do to make a change um, rather than what do we have to do to win 51 percent of the vote well let, let's talk a little bit about hopefully the healing that can take place you know joe biden uh it looks like will be the next president uh and he's a person of deep faith his catholic faith is important to him um I know that you've worked with uh, people on the campaign to talk about how we can have a more robust dialogue for Democrats and people of faith. Um, Do you think that Joe Biden can provide a bit of a bridge uh, for Democrats and for Republicans, uh, people of faith, to come together a little more around their politics? Or is that too much uh, hope? I'm not sure Joe Biden will be able to do it. The president, any president has a lot of to do's on their list. I'm not sure the president should spend a lot of time and presidential equity on doing it. But I think a candidate and now a president like Joe Biden and a vice president like Kamala Harris provide the rest of us the opportunity and the invitation to do that work. So, you know, Barack Obama was quite famous and, and frustratedly famous for saying, hey, I can't do all this work. I, I need this to be a grassroots movement, right? Like we, that's how change happens in America is not from the president down, but up from the people with the president supporting that uplift, that, that drive from the bottom up. I think a lot of other organizations, groups and leaders, especially political and Christian leaders who are not having to fulfill the responsibilities of elected office. This is incumbent upon us to do this work. Uh, Part of the reason that I created an organization to try to help in the election was I didn't know who the candidate was going to be. And I wasn't going to leave it up to another candidate. Like, uh, like I felt like had to happen with Hillary Clinton. And I was a big Hillary Clinton supporter. And I realized that they had zero infrastructure for doing this work. So I'm not going to trust that any next candidate would have it. And we're going to do the same thing. I think in the next four years is other leaders and organizations have to step in and do this work. You know, the religious right has built a very sophisticated infrastructure for engaging political conversation with their with their followers i disagree with them i think they're harmful i think it's wrong i I want to provide an alternative to it um i I think they they literally don't know what they're doing and they're they're damaging uh the planet and all who live on it with their policies and their attitudes um but what they've created works and we have to we have to create something that is more um ongoingly effective for this very work of, of healing that needs to go on. So it's going to mean neighbor to neighbor. It's going to mean having some difficult conversations of reckoning and reconciliation. Um, and it's going to mean our, our leaders having to, uh, to do things that leaders don't want to do. And I'll just tell you that I've watched leaders from politics who don't want to engage in faith. I've watched business leaders cower under the fear that they would lose 
customers. I've watched religious leaders cower under the fact that they might lose parishioners and the lack of leadership in this country from people who are granted, you know, some sort of um, influence or, or power uh, is really been stunning over the last four years. And um, I think we have a leadership crisis to, in the healing sector as well. And we all have to get busy working on it because if we just act like um, these last four years of the Trump administration can just now go away and we'll just, you know, uh, close our eyes and open to a new world someday without doing some hard work to reconcile why this has gone on and how we've allowed someone like Donald Trump to trample on the um, things that we say we hold so precious in this country. I just think uh, leaders outside the government uh, the actual administration are going to have to get busy doing that work. You hear a lot about, you know, how Christianity is under attack. You know, I think when you talk about the religious right, why they're so effective is that they, they're, they're good at making people afraid. And this idea is advanced. Uh, I hear it a lot that religious freedom is under attack. Christianity is under attack. And as a person that lives my life outside of the religion, I look around and think, are you kidding me? Like, you know, it's all around me. Basically everyone is, 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 you know, at least culturally Christian, you know, it's on somewhere on the, on the, on the Christian spectrum, you know, virtually everyone. So what is this attack all about? What is this, you know, religious freedoms going where Christianity becoming extinct? Where, where, where's justification for this argument come from? It's a little complicated at first blush about why it is, um, but I'll try to be brief with it. What people are talking about is an attack on a certain conservative fundamentalist version of Christianity, especially Catholicism. And these are people who's, who believe that one of the chief um, warriors in the attack on Christianity is the Pope that the Pope has become a progressive socialist Pope that is trying to create this like grand world religion where Christianity is more diminished and Islam is more lifted up. And these are people who see that as an attack on Christianity. Now you might think that that's just fringy, but it includes people like William Barr. It includes Steve Bannon. It includes Kellyanne Conway. It includes Mel Gibson. There's this whole group of uber conservative Catholics that speak about this within Catholicism where the Pope is somewhere on a spectrum between being heretical and not Christian, right? It's unbelievable. Vanity Fair had a great article about this. I think they called it deep church and they were saying, what, how does QAnon, how did QAnon find its way into Christianity so deeply? Well, that same thing exists inside of evangelical and Protestant world not just in the Catholic world. And you can hear these people when they'll say things like, you're not a real Christian, right? I I get it all the time. Truly. I mean, really every single day, many, many messages that people send because we're public and we're in the newspaper and stuff and uh, on radio. And so people will message me every day and remind me that uh, I'm somewhere between, you know, a heretic and a heathen, uh, but certainly not anything really true Christian. Right. Um, And they think people like me are, I'm attacking uh, Christianity and Christmas and all the rest of this. Um, and so, so you get it all the way across the board. And this is one of the pieces that the moderates and progressives have to start calling out. 
Yeah. And, you know, back in 2001, 2002, there was this big uproar in the United States where people were saying to uh, people of Muslim faith, like, where are all the moderate Muslims? Why, why are we only hearing from fundamentalist Muslims? Well, that's the point that Christianity has been in. Why are we, where are all the moderates who really do understand what people mean when they say there's a war on Christianity? And this war that they're talking about, it's not just from secular world. It's also from all these fake Christians. So we were at an event and Connor Lamb, Congressman Connor Lamb was there and it was in Pittsburgh uh, back in September. And we were, our events, uh, we do these outdoor public events and it was surrounded by a bunch of anti-abortion protesters who were screaming at Connor Lamb, who's a Catholic, that he's not a true Catholic and Joe Biden is not a Catholic. And that's why the bishop did not offer communion to Joe Biden because he's not a true Catholic. It comes from the bishops down. Like this is such a deep, deep conviction among a swath. Maybe it's a 20, 30% swath of Catholics and Protestant Christians that are in this um uh, version that that Christianity is under assault by those inside the faith and those outside the faith, and it's a deep conspiracy theory that has to be confronted, called out. And Ed, to your comment, like the opposite is true when it comes to the facts, right? But these are people who would say that you know all the churches you see on street corners, those don't all count as Christianity. They're talking about a remnant of Christianity that is exclusivist to a level that actually is it's not under attack by other people but people are dismissive of it right and they're like no we don't think your your version of of the christian faith is something that should be propagated uh and it's you know and it's certainly not um not something that that we're, we all mean when we say to somebody merry christmas right um and and so it comes from there so that's one side the, the other side is these are just people that that really do want everyone to end every sentence with God bless you and in Jesus name and they their imagination for the world now they're not into the deep church deep you know uh, uh, conspiracy theory stuff that 20 or 30 percent of the most ardent famous people are into and this would be Franklin Graham and all those people they're all over in that other crowd but these other people they're just like well I don't know we used to say Merry Christmas and now we say happy holidays you know, like, like somehow that's an, a slight or an attack on Christmas, you know? Um, and, and then they say like, and gay marriage feels like it just doesn't take the sanctity of marriage very seriously. And people not going to church means that, you know, like I feel embarrassed that I still go to church and people in movies mock Christians and, you know, you know they're like taking personal affront at this, like somehow that um, they've lost some point of privilege which they have and they're kind of offended by it so it's on a spectrum in in there somewhere and um i think it's incumbent on i mean it's my part of my work and i think for any other uh, religious leader to bring up the the reality that christianity has great benefit in this country far too much in fact we're we're given all kinds of breaks and 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 uh, power in in our society uh, from top to bottom, both officially and unofficially. It's um, it's it's everywhere. So it's just not a legitimate uh, uh, 
critique or a complaint to make in my view, but, but people have to start raising that. Right. I think um, if we're going to keep hearing people say Christianity is under attack, other people need to say, boy, Christianity is continues to receive far too much um, uh, freedom. And it's not, it's not freedom, right. That you're talking, you're not talking about religious freedom. You're talking about uh, privilege and, and a higher place of which the Christian tradition teaches one to not seek in the first place. So why someone wants that is uh, just misguided Christian notion. Is it important to you that a candidate for office or uh, someone holding high office be a person of faith? No, I I think if someone is a person of faith, uh, we should all be a little more skeptical of of that person, and especially the person who is someone for whom their faith is most important to them, right? Because there's a lot of pressure to use your public role to advocate your own personal religious life and faith. So I think if someone is, and I, I recruit people to run for office, I think everybody should run for office all the time. I think it's part of the American democracy. And if people of faith are going to run, I think they should be really careful to make sure that they're building in safeguards to be sure that they're not using the political or governmental systems and structures to be advocating for their own personal faith because it's bad for the faith and it's bad for our government. So I do think people should run who are, who are of faith. And I think they should take very seriously the concerns and limitations um, that, that are, or the, the concerns and convictions uh, of those who are not uh, of, of their own faith. So I don't, I, look, I, I've known way too many people who are of the Christian faith and have been in public service to think that somehow that makes you a good public servant, right? Uh, that's just not the case. <laughs> I've just known lots of them. Um, so it's pretty obvious to me from the numbers that, yeah, being a person of faith doesn't mean you're going to be someone who's going to uh, do your, your political uh, service in a way that's beneficial to others. And I think on the other hand, we should look at it really carefully and make sure that if someone does have deep religious faith, that they're, um, that someone's helping them uh, be sure that they're, they're thinking about the lives of others as well. But, and, and for Christians, that should come a little easier because the one thing you don't do as a Christian is make sure that Christians are the ones that are benefited, right? You, you truly are called to live as a benefit and blessing to, to others and to never put yourself first. That there's this great teaching in Christianity that says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others before yourself. So, so what a, what a person in, in public service who is from the Christian tradition needs to always be saying is, what about the other that my own tradition wouldn't allow me to know or to see or has given me a blind spot toward? So uh, that's that's the most important thing, and and not seeking personal favors for their own group. Boy, and I, I wish Christian churches were teaching us. I wish I wish Christianity taught this more often in, in everything we do. That um, it's not like uh, you know, it's not like your sports team that you're rooting for, and you find somebody else that's a Cubs fan, and you and you rally, rally together around some common cause. That that's not what you do in public service, and it's certainly not what you do in your Christian faith. And this is that inclusion exclusion uh, kind of kaleidoscope through which we choose to look and so how that divides will decide whether or not we are saying oh you're a fellow cubs fan or you're a fellow christian or you're a fellow muslim so we should just band together versus an an inclusive uh, approach which is look you're part of god's creation you may see the world differently than i do you may have a different faith but let's band together because we're sharing the planet right right Right. Yeah. And I have an obligation to you to to care for you and to be sure that you are also cared and 
cared for and supported that that my faith means that I have to look out for you. Um, yeah, and if you remember, I wrote about this in a book, so I've 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 written, you know remembered the story. And there was a movie made about there was an American soldier in Afghanistan who got separated from his troop and was taken in and protected by um, a and, doctor, uh, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, doctor. Um, and it was under an uh, a, an edict that they have in in Islam that was really important in his in his tribe that he protected this man. And the Taliban came around looking for the soldier and. Uh, he hid him in his in his house and and protected him and the obligation in islam is that if a foreigner is in your place and is in danger you have to protect them that that's the heart of what the christian teaching is as well that's in the christian teaching as well right that you you care for the other as if it was yourself and you give over to yourself and and so ironically there are these christians in this country who think that islam is the threat when it's they've got the whole thing sort of you know freaky that, friday turned around and backward yeah i i've had some personal experience with that that frankly was very moving um about 10 years ago i was overseas for a period of time and living in tanzania and i was teaching in a school and i was living on a compound for international volunteers and it was mostly australians and uh, one or two other Americans, a few people from Europe, who of course were all Christians for the most part. Um, and the caretakers, the people who you know ran the compound and were part of this organization were, were predominantly Muslim. And I felt that real sense of care from them, wanting to make sure that we were comfortable and that we were safe and the ways that they would go out of their way to um, feel as if we were cared for was very moving. In fact, uh, I remember that the time that I was there overlapped with, with Christmas. And when I woke up and came out of my hut, my little hut on Christmas morning, uh, they had put together this, you know, odd little Christmas tree they managed to patch together, you know, this group of Muslims. Wow for the to you know to for, because of their guests and and I had another experience in Jordan same same thing I was I was I was in Jordan in Wadi Rum in the middle of the desert uh it's kind of a long story I won't get into but I <laughs> I got lost in the desert me and my travel uh partner a friend of mine who had come over from the states to join me and our guide um who was uh, a very devout Muslim who was driving us through uh, was completely frantic looking for us when he had realized, you know, how far away we had gotten from the truck and we had gone into this Canyon exploring kind of on a hike and got turned around, didn't know where he was or where we were. And man, when he came racing in his truck up to us, he was he just could not have been more frightened that something had happened to us. And he had said that, you know, we were his responsibility, Yeah, you know, and this was a guy that when we got into his car that morning, he was just, you know, he, he, he had on his, on the CDs, just listening to the Quran, you know, all day. That's what he listens to as he drives. He was so devout. And, you know, you have those kinds of experiences and you realize just, you know, you know, people are people, you yes. know, and they want to be understood. They want to belong. Um, and you're going to find goodness everywhere. 
Well, that's a beautiful story. I think you're full of those. I'd love to go out and get a get a beer sometime and hear hear, hear many more of them. From those. Yeah, I, I have a feel. Um, but I will tell you that. But but can I admit something to you? Yeah, I will. You know, prior to that experience, I had much more uh, hostility towards religion than I do now. Maybe hostility is a strong word, but I'm trying to figure out but i think it's i think it's it it fits i i sort of thought there's really no use for it i don't understand why someone wants to complicate their life with um uh actually more it had more to do with i think a, a, a conventional feeling that it was that religion was causing more havoc in the world than it was worth and it took a while for me to understand because I was so disconnected from it, how it was bringing a lot on an individual basis, on a micro basis to people's lives and what it meant to them. And I was looking at it on a macro basis thinking, boy, this is, you know, really a big mess and it might be better off if humanity just ditched it. But that experience changed my feeling about it. Those experiences. Yeah, I, I'm honestly, Doug, I think that actually goes to your work. I mean, you know, Christ says in Matthew and in Mark, I'm asking you to do two things. Love the God, love God with all of your heart and love each other the way God loves you. And, you know, he doesn't have any distinction that he makes inside of that. And by right. each other, I only mean people that are like you or look <laughs> like you or think like you. It's just love. And I think that when faith is most beautiful and most relevant and most impactful is when it just loves people. You know, Ed as an atheist is over in Jordan and uh, a guy who's a Muslim is losing his mind that, Oh my gosh, you know, you're my responsibility partner and how can I help you? And he's in Tanzania and people are saying, how can we make you feel more welcome? And again, I, I just, I think that, that there's a healing that we've got to do inside uh, our faith that um, leads with loving each other as God loves you leads with that. And not, are you in, are you on my sports team or are you not? And um, it's, it, it seems like um, an interesting distinction, but it's way more than that. It's binary. It it really is. It's it's whether you are on the switch of loving people, or if you are um, distracted and um, you're more interested in right. making a bargain that that might not be beneficial for the people around you. I think yeah, the most, and, and that's go, no. Go ahead. Well, I was going to just add on to that. I think the most persuasive thing in the world is setting a good example. People don't like to be told what to do. People don't like to be told what to believe. People don't, you know, it just doesn't work. It, it, it's not the way to interact with people. But if you set an example in your own life, of how yeah. you a, a, approach things and over time people will see. And I think that's the way you persuade people. Yeah. We're, we're hardwired uh, for empathy, right. And to see in someone else's life and behavior, both pain and joy. And, you know, so from a, a laugh to a cry, to a yawn, we, we match one another, right? So mm-hmm. when one lives their life in a way it, it we're, we're designed to respond to that and to act in kind to, as a Christian phrase to go and do likewise, right. Where, where then you start to 
live that same pattern. It's it's actually the, the fundamental teaching of Jesus that, you know, do as I have done, right? So so love as I have loved. That's the that's the fundamental piece in the Jewish tradition, which was Jesus's tradition. It was the, you know, am I my brother's keeper? That's a real question that we're asking all the time, you know, and, and Ed, your your stories from uh, from your life are times when someone said, yes, you're my, I am your keeper and I'm, yeah. you know, I'm going to, I'm going to care for you. And that's fundamentally the question that we're asking of one another in this country and around the world right now is, do we have an obligation to one another and do we keep one another? Do we hold one another? Um, and sometimes we have to do that even when some of us act in ways that are harmful and destructive, right? That story in the Jewish tradition of, am I my brother's keeper yeah. comes out of the time when, you know, God asks, uh, Cain, where's your brother Abel who he has just killed. Right. So the idea of being your brother's keeper, it's not like some, some, uh, you know, uh, kumbaya moment of, yeah, we all get along. It's the alternative to killing one another. So it's really serious, right? It's the other side of war. It's the other alternative. And, you know, Perry, I think about your comment of Jesus, you know, love God and love each other. Uh, you know, at one point Jesus has to sort of clarify, and that means your enemy too, you know, <laughs> like love, yeah, right. uh, love, love your neighbor and love your enemy. And because the, what you've done is the different, when you've created a distinction between your neighbor and your enemy, that's a distinction that doesn't make any sense. Um, if you're going to be a lovest, which I think is the primary theological category for someone to be in, right, is that love is your is your way, um, and the most Christian way, because the Christian teaching is that God is love. So if you're going to be a God follower in the Jesus or Christian tradition, it means you're a lovest, and and that means that you 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 don't get to make these distinctions of me versus you or enemy versus friend or any of the rest that we have to find a way to, to care for one another. And I think that means not only internally in our hearts and in our minds, but then in every area of our society. And we happen to live in a, you know, representative form of democracy where we create the realities that we're going to live in. And that means we have some real obligations in front of us. And I wish our Christian traditions and all of our religious traditions called us into a deeper sense of obligation for how we care for one another through our entire systems. Right. Um, uh, and and that, that these are the, these are our obligations that, that we find for one another. So you you have a task in front of you, though, that you've obviously jumped deep in the water on, which is how do I create an infrastructure that um, allows a larger dialogue around inclusion and Christianity? And you give the example of people who've done the opposite, Ralph Reed, et cetera, <laughs> who have created an infrastructure that supports exclusion and Christianity, or at least their version of it. Um, How's that that going? Uh, how daunting is that task? Uh, and do you feel like you have help from other organizations uh, in accomplishing that goal? Uh, I, I hope yes. I think there's many many pieces. Um, it, it's it's of a different kind. the The way you create inclusive reality is through a relational set. The way you create uh, exclusion is through a bounded set. So um, the you, you need to have a different mentality, right? So a a relational set is like network theory, and you can see that through you know many different kinds of networks that are formed and created. Where where what you have to do is is connect that which already exists into new ways of relating to one another. So it's a fundamentally a relational problem. A bounded set is is 
kind of more fundamentalist where you just say you, 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 you can create a very clear boundary of what it means to be on the outside and what it means to be on the inside. Um, in a relational set, there, there is no boundary of outside to inside. So like family relationships are like that, right? Where someone will introduce you to a friend and they'll say, hey, this is, uh, this is Uncle Joe. And someone will go, oh, who's, whose brother are you? And they'll say, well, he's not really an uncle, but we just he's my dad's best friend and they grew up together. So we call him Uncle Joe, right? So family systems, they're like all relationships. And a lot of businesses are actually formed around relationships, not just around contracts. And so that's the work that we have to do in this world where religion is much easier if you can form it just around, uh, here's what it means to be in and out. Like, do you believe what I believe? Do you go where I go? Do you say what I say? Do you vote the way I vote? Then you're in or you're out. Uh, but boy, this relational thing is is much more difficult. And I, I think the hard work moving forward to build this infrastructure is, can we actually create an imagination where people can see networks of inclusion. And some of this is about the, the mind's eye, right? Can people imagine it so they can conceive of it so that when they're living in it, it can become a reality. Um, so there's a lot of a deep imaginative work. And I actually think it, re- it requires artists and creativity and fun and play and those parts of the human experience as much as the, um, the more, typical ones that you might think of in society and culture. And so bureaucracies tend to be bad for that. Uh, and so the political system and the religious system are actually working against it. They're, they're designed as bounded sets. Um, so this kind of relational um, engagement requires a different um, a different way to conceive of, uh, of it. But, but I think we're closer to it. I think the internet helps with it. I think our, our devices that we have in our hands and the notion of a cloud kind of, I think we're getting it. I think we're starting to like the fact of what we're doing right now, where there's three of us in different places and, but looking at each other and having a real experience talking to each other, it starts to create, um, some space in our minds that, um, allow us to to know that we we could function in a way um that that might be new to us um in some new ways to care care for one another so i i i think there's just a lot of work to do but i think it's going to take um a lot of real creativity to to get there so for those people who um want to help you on that journey how do they find out more about vote common good uh, well, our website's a great way, votecommongood.com. Uh, we also are on the other social places, uh, all under the Vote Common Good um, uh, name, which is you know Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and those those places. And um, and then dougpaget.com is a website that I use to sort of keep lots of my projects sort of pulled together into one space. Well, Doug, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. Honestly, this has been such a great conversation and I'm really impressed with the work you're doing. You're out there living it every day. And um, I just, I appreciate you very much. Well, thank you, Barry. Thanks, Ed. Good to meet you. Thank you, Doug. Well, Ed, that was an interesting conversation. I, I really appreciated the, the stories that you shared. Those um, were really interesting how you were impacted. I've known uh, those stories but I didn't know that it kind of reconfigured your thinking about people of, of faith. Yeah, it did. And I think the reason those gestures and the experiences I had with those people, um, those individuals set an example, like I was saying before, the most 
powerful way to persuade someone is to to set the example to to conduct yourself in a way that others would like to emulate or at least admire rather than trying to tell somebody what they should do and each one of those instances what i experienced was someone being themselves acts of kindness that came um naturally to them and and whatever they were motivated by you know for instance um uh ali who was my guide in in jordan you know i know that he was motivated through his muslim faith to want to take care of us and to protect us in the end the motivation doesn't really matter um but the example is powerful because it shows that people from all walks of life who you, you might not understand where they're coming from or, or their belief systems, it, it, it is just a, the, the, the reflection of their humanity and the connection we all have leaves a, a really, you know, powerful mark, you know, particularly when you're outside of your own environment. You know, that sort of thing might not have the same impact if I experienced it, you know, at a Whole Foods, you know, on Santa Monica Boulevard or something, you know, you know, but when you are on your own overseas in a place where you don't speak the language, where everything is strange and you are on the receiving end of that kind of kindness and that kind of care, and you really feel it and you feel it sincere, it does sort of reorganize your mind a little bit and you think, you know, and you think differently about quote, those people. Yeah. But it's, it's really just a person who's a good representation of a different culture. Yeah. And so that's why you're interested in that distinction between faith and religion, because when it's faith, it's just a person. And when it's a religion, it's us versus them inside versus outside for you. That's right. It's, it's the micro versus the macro. You know, Doug uh, alluded to it a little bit when he was pointing out that, you know, he has relationship with, you know, Christians that on a micro basis couldn't be more kind or generous in helping a friend, doing a good deed, reaching out to someone who's sick, whatever that might be. But then he experiences this, this, this sort of strange anger towards this broader group. You know, so what is going on there? I used to kind of tell this whole joke that maybe some people won't think is funny, but I, but it reminded me of it. I, I used to say, well, um, conservatives love people, but hate humanity and liberals love humanity, but hate people. <laughs> you know, it's that dichotomy yeah. of, you know, on the liberal side, I want to save the world and everybody's equal and we all need to come together. But, you know, but Johnny sure is a jerk. Yeah. But Johnny yeah, sure yeah, is a son yeah, of a bitch. Exactly. Yeah. And then on the opposite side, you know, and again, these are stereotypes. Nobody, yeah. you know, please don't send letters. Right. Uh, <laughs> but on the conservative side, you have this incredible amount of kindness on a micro level, you know, help your neighbor bring a pie next door, these sort of stereotypes or, you know, visit a friend in the hospital. But there seems to be this, this reluctance to want to help beyond your immediate tribe it's it's kind of interesting and of course i'm generalizing of course this is universally true but um it is maybe placed to the stereotypes we have a little bit yeah and I, th- I think that what's interesting about the solution that that doug outlined today was it's relational not transactional mm-hmm. and relationships are complex 
And so by necessity for us to figure our way out of this, it's not going to be being in um, a camp. It's not going to be in putting on your team colors. It'll never be found there. It's going to be found by being relational with the people that are in your life and then going out of your way to be relational with people who are not in your life, but need assistance. And that last part is going to be important for us to, to heal. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the relationships is the right way to think about it and how broad you want to have your relationships stretch. You know, do you certainly you have a relationship with your immediate family and your friends, but do you have a relationship with your fellow citizens you know, not just in your own country or across the world, you know, we're all connected to one another. You know, we've been through a really, really strange time. The country has felt mean and petty. The energy has been really bad. People are angry at one another. People don't understand one another. One side is stupid. The other side is elitist. And I, you know, you and I were inspired to have these conversations, I think, hopefully to set an example of how people can talk to one another and think things through and consider your own by our own biases, biases and an attempt to be objective about things. And it's a challenge because we all feel the moment of anger. We all feel the moment of frustration. We all feel the outrage of how, I mean, how can this guy say this or do this? And that's going to go on maybe a little bit, but it's how we all connect with one another. That's important and slow it down and try to think of how another person views it and I don't think that the answer, I don't think the, the answer is to arrive at a place where everyone agrees because that's not realistic. But I really do believe that everyone is capable of some empathy, understanding where someone else is coming from and respecting their own boundaries on how they want to live. That's the best way to end this in all honesty, Ed. Uh, that's well said. This has been The Head and the Heart. Uh, I'm Perry Rogers. And I'm Ed Borgato. You can follow us on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And you can follow us on Twitter, which is at head underscore heart underscore pod. And this podcast, like all of them, have been produced by Casey Morris. Thank you, Casey. Thank you, Casey. Everybody wants to move. <laughs>